out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Tony DeFreyas, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. As well as his time managing people such as David Bowie, working with E-Pop, Mick Rodinson, Mott the Hoop or Donna Gillespie. And um, also his time working with such people as Lawrence Mayers, and Foreman Main Man Management Company. So with that excitement in mind, we'll get down to the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years. Tony, take it away. Well, in a way, for me, that would probably be the combination of Dylan in, in the 60s, probably 63, when he first came to London, and... The blues singer, who was a big favourite of mine. And so I know it's a strange combination. Dylan I liked a lot because of his lyrics. His lyrics were always absolutely astonishing. Things like Tambourine Man or Blowing in the Wind or Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Mm. Even though he probably say was inspired by many other sources, he was especially actually fond of a book called um, The Fleur de Mar. It's a French, uh, French poet who wrote a book called Fleur de Mar, Flowers of Death, literally translated, or Deadly Flowers. Um, depends on your French. <laughs> and then he was um, very keen on that style of writing in what were essentially almost pictures. I mean, Dylan painted pictures in words, and, and that was very interesting. Um, Otis Redding was my other really fascinating. Again, because of the way he sang, not so much the songs themselves, although they outstanding songs. I mean, his, his rendition of some of those early blues songs was amazing. So I suppose they're my two. And then, of course, my actual one-on-one hands-on involvement with music came with that animals recording of the House of the Rising Sun. That's why I started working with Mickey Most. Yes. And, and so Mickey was, in a way, um, not my first client in the music business, but he was certainly one of the most entertaining I was a Cockney lad who teamed up with an upper-class chap called Alexander Wharton Murray, believe it or not. Um, and they went off to South Africa, which is astonishing because I'm sitting talking to you in South Africa. <laughs> and this was in the early 60s. This is before he met and married the girl in South Africa, Christina, who only took that treatment, obviously. Um, they called themselves the Most Brothers. And Mickey's real name is Michael Peter Hayes. Mm. So here you have a Cockney lad, probably a bit more South London, actually, and a very upper-class chap. And off they go as the Most Brothers. And they go around South Africa. And then they make a big mistake. The mistake they make is 
they start playing in black venues. At that point in time, it wasn't at all popular, and in fact, it wasn't legitimately lawful for white performers to go and play in front of black audiences. And that brought them to the attention of the authorities, and that brought them to the attention of, I think they used to call him the crocodile, the, the, the chap who was um, president of South Africa at the time. Of course, it's a slap bang in the middle of the apartheid era. And so they were kicked out and forbidden to ever return. I think they spent a little time in jail along the way. Mm. So back they came to England and then Alex said, sorry, Mickey, but I'm not going to go on doing this. And he went off. Yes. Meanwhile, he, he Alex, so he, half the most brothers left <laughs> and Mickey was left. Now, remember, Mickey was playing in the tube station and collecting the odd bit of money before he struck gold with, with the animals. And the reason he came to meet me was because my early partner in the music business was a chap called Lawrence Myers, and we started this gem management, gem recording, etc., gem group business a bit later on, but we hadn't started it yet. But Lawrence had an accounting firm with Ellis um, Goodman, and he did a lot of work for different people in the industry, like early Rod Stewart, early uh, Ronnie Lane. Um, he did some did work for the Rolling Stones. So he had quite a footprint in doing accounting, providing accounting services for writers and performers and record producers. And Mickey was one of his clients. When the House of the Rising Sun became a hit, a lot of other records that Mickey had made for different record companies also, because Mickey was an independent producer. He didn't have his own label at that time. He just made records for whoever would um, give him an artist to record, whichever label was up for recording something. He grabbed a song from wherever he could. He used whatever money he could scrape up. That's where the problem arose. Mickey had collected various bits of money from various investors who he'd met, and he promised all of them, without actual formal contracts in most cases, but he just said that if you lend me X amount of money, enough to go and make a record, which wasn't a lot in those days. This is the days of two-track tape, and one of the reasons Mickey was so successful was because he had an ear for a song, mm -hmm. and he was capable of recording the whole thing in one take, as long as the band knew what they were playing. So he would always try and pick, A, bands that were used to playing the same song, which they'd been played in clubs and bars for the last couple of years. That's exactly what the animals had done. They, they'd arranged that song, um, Alan Price and, and, uh, and, and the other guy, Clark. Mm -hmm. um, they arranged the song. It was an old um, spiritual. Um, probably Negro spiritual song from America to about um, a boy who grows up in a whole house in New Orleans. That's the House of the Rising Sun. Um, lovely lyrics. They changed the arrangement from what had been a, 
pretty much a blues song to more of a rock song. And then they played it for ever and ever. And when Mickey found them, which he did by his, one of his methods of finding new talent was to go off to clubs in different parts of England. And he knew that if you went to the north of England, you were more likely to find raw talent there than you were in the south, where it would get picked up by record companies quite quickly. He met Mike Jeffries, who had a club. Mike and Mickey both became my clients. Mickey said to Mike, if you let me have this band for recording, I'll split whatever I make with you 50-50. And in return, if you carry on managing the band, you'll split with me 50-50. It's a very historic moment, actually, because later on, Mike Jeffries goes to America and hears a young guitar player, mm -hmm. who we still call Jimmy. Yes. He brings Jimmy back to England. And that's when everything takes off for Hendrix in England. So there's a huge story in there, an astonishing set of coincidences. But here's the problem for Mickey and the reason I got involved. I was doing legal work for lots of different people. I'd done it for photographers, and I'd done it for designers, and I'd done it for um, the guy who wrote the Beatles song, but I don't know his name. Um, Alan, Alan something, anyway, he, he came to me because he was concerned that they were going to use his design for the Beatles songbook, which was Sergeant Pepper's songbook, really, um, and not give him credit for it. He didn't realise he was supposed to get ongoing royalties for it. He thought he was just going to get paid for it, but he wanted his name on it. I said, well, yes, it's good to have your name on it, but I think more important to get paid for it. So, <laughs> so I arranged that and took yes. care of that. And he actually introduced me to Don Silverstein, who was the photographer who took the iconic Hendrix picture. And he took it for Decca, and it was a photo shoot where he was supposed to just be doing the poster for the inset, insert in the, in the album. So the idea was, in those days, you used to put out an album, and inside the sleeve, you'd put a poster that kids would and did mm -hmm. up on their walls and in their bedrooms, and that would be, you know, the little shrine to that particular act. So it was a very popular thing. So what Don Silverstein, who was an American photographer living in, working in England, came and said to me was, look, I did these pictures for that particular poster, and now I'm seeing my pictures from that shoot are on T-shirts and they're on mugs and they're all kinds of things, and can I do anything about it? And I said, well, how many, how many pictures have you got from that session? They said, I've got hundreds. Because in those days, people used to take a, a roll of films, 10, 20 pictures, and you'd take 5, 10, 20 rolls of film for a shoot because then you could pick the contacts and say, give it to the ad agency or to the record company in this case to let them choose that you as the photographer always wanted to choose the 10 best and not give many pictures that weren't going to make the cut. Mm. That meant every photographer had lots of pictures. And the Copyright Act in England at the time said, and it still does, that if you pay for the cost of making the picture, 
you pay for the cost of developing and printing and processing, then it's yours. If somebody hires you to do a shoot and they select a number of pictures and they use one of them for their particular purpose, or maybe more than one of them for an advertising campaign or whatever it might be, the rest of them belong to you. And so what I said to Don was, I will send a suitable letter to Decca, letting them know that A, those pictures should not be used for anything but the purpose for which they were commissioned, and B, that you have many other pictures that you plan to use for other purposes. And then I did a few deals with different people to use his other pictures. And after the usual sort of back and forth with Decker's lawyers, they said, let's sort something out. And I said, okay, fine, we share. We share your rewards with us. <laughs> yeah. We share our rewards with you because we don't have to. And, and so that, that's what happened. So then Don uh, assembled a bunch of photographers, including Duffy and Bailey and lots of others, even um, Anthony Armstrong Jones, actually. Wow. Yeah. He was a good photographer. And, and early on, um, what's his name? Ridley Scott. So this all goes to the point of why Mickey came to talk to me about this problem. So what was the problem? When he had the House of the Rising Suns as a hit, at around the same time, four other recordings of his, some of which had been done with writers that we already worked with, and some of which have been done with Mickey's favorite session players, a chap called Jimmy Page, another chap called John Bonham, another one called Robert Plant, and occasionally John Paul James, not so right. often. But those three were ultimately Led Zeppelin after a few full starts. But the fact that they played together all the time and they played together well and they knew exactly what to play and they were willing for whatever it was going away. Was, it wasn't very much in those days to come into the studio and they were quick and they were fast. And that's what he wanted, quick, fast players who knew what they were doing. So Mickey's problem, he promised all these different people 50%. But he never specified what money was going to be used for what record, because he didn't know. He simply took the money and when a, a sort of viable song or a viable act came along, off he went and made a record. Now the problem was that he didn't know who was supposed to get what share of what record. And they, of course, all wanted a share of all the records. What I explained to everybody was that in English law, you can't do that. If you, first of all, if you don't have a contract where both sides clearly understand what it was meant or intent, then it's not a binding contract. And second of all, if you have a contract that's so vague as to be unenforceable, particularly not binding, and then of course, it's quite helpful if you actually have any proof of your contract. It can be an oral agreement, but you need to know exactly what it was you agreed, 
And, a lot, and of course, a lot of these folks didn't know what they were doing. And some of them had gone so far as to create companies and, Jim, and Mickey had foolishly, and he didn't ever do it again, but at that point in time, he didn't know any better. So he'd actually allowed himself to be appointed a director of these companies. He had check signing facility um, capabilities or they'd open bank accounts that he could sign on. This was all very bad. So mm. those people had to be, get paid something because otherwise they wouldn't suffer. But ultimately, a lot of the people that were coming forward and saying, we owed royalties from this particular area, could be persuaded that actually they didn't have a case, they wouldn't win. And the thing dragged out for a while. There was, there was litigation, and that was my field. Yes. And ultimately, it all ended well because when Alan Klein came over, which was about four, four years later, after Rising Sun was 64, I think Klein showed up in 69. And of course, Alan came with the rather old ambition of signing up Mickey Mouse. Donovan, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles. Mm. And he actually went home, not immediately, he came back and forth a few times. <laughs> Lawrence and I were his envoys because at that point in time, I was handling Mickey and so was Lawrence. We were handling the songwriters who were managing Donovan, a couple called Jeff, Jeff Stevens, and uh, who the other guy? Another guy, um, oh, Peter Eden. Right. And so what Lawrence and I decided, we, 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 were, we were sending these folks off to exile in different countries. The idea being, under English tax law, you could create two separate employers. One of them could be an English company in the UK. Whenever you did work in the UK, you would have to give your results and proceeds, as it were, mm -hmm. and rights to them. And then money flowing from those things would go to that company and they'd pay you accordingly. And work you did outside of the UK wouldn't be subject to UK taxes. And so you could, so then became quite popular for acts to start going and recording in Switzerland and France and <laughs> Barbados and Jamaica, anywhere that wasn't the UK, you see what I mean? And, and that was largely um, the result of our advice and the formation of these kind of companies. Mm. And we'd done this before we formed GEM. This is what we were doing for different people. He was doing the account side and I was doing the legal side. And Switzerland was one of the or safe havens then. Mm -hmm. And so we sent Jeff Stevens, who'd written with, with Peace Reed and Winchester Cathedral, and they wrote There's a Kind of Hush, and they wrote a whole bunch of songs. They were huge hits, and that they were both teaching school in South End on Sea, can you believe it? <laughs> suddenly they had millions of pounds. And off they went, well, Jeff went off to Switzerland and went to live in a very, very grand house and bought himself a Lamborghini, which had squeaky brakes. Nice. Lamborghini, always a bit dodgy in those days. And um, was very unhappy because he missed all his friends. And we said, look, Jeff, just 
bring them over for a visit, take them to the local Swiss bar and pretend it's an English pub. <laughs> it wasn't, he wasn't happy. Anyway, he did it. Um, Donovan, on the other hand, engaged some girl in England, didn't follow the instructions, came back, it cost him about seven million pounds. <laughs> yes. Those are all those are all sort of the early days. Yes. And I was flying back and forth to Switzerland to keep Jeff from breaking the rules pretty much and setting up new companies that we could use for other clients. And on one of these flights, we started talking about well. Why don't we turn this into a business rather than just doing the legal and accounting work? Why don't we start our own label and our own, because we knew all about publishing and writing and production and performing and making records and even how to, how to make a master and all of that. Yes. So you know, it was like all this was going to waste. And so we decided to form Jam. That's how Jam got started. Yeah. At the time Alan I was going to say, but what, I mean, because it's, what was quite interesting, you know, with, with you know, you signing David Bowie, was that um, he was obviously in the management deal and he had a very, some protracted kind of contracts he'd signed. But also, what I'm curious about is why you went for David, because his kind of work in the 60s was kind of a little bit hit and miss, let's face it, it was quite miss, really. So there were, so it's kind of, how did you see, you know, the, the amount of work and investment you put into David when, you know, there, there might have been other people with such, with less kind of baggage and less kind of protracted contracts and management. I just wondered what you saw in David, because at that stage he'd been in various R&B bands, he'd been in that folk band with Hermione, and, and then sort of to take such a character. I mean, did you, you know, and, and have you, having worked with people like Donovan and Mickey Most, and various other people. I just wondered what it was about him that you thought was so potential. Well, I'd also worked with um, the Beatles collectively and individually by the time I met David. Um, when he came to see me, and he came to see me because I'd already started this association of photographers and, and one of the photographers had a secretary and her boyfriend was Olaf Wiper, and he was the head of Philips Records in the UK. And he was having a problem with one of his artists because the artist was having a problem with his manager. And that was David, and the manager was Ken Pitt. So um, the girl asked me if I would meet with David and help him sort out his problems with his manager. And I said, okay, tell him to come. I had an office in Cavendish Square then. Tell him to come and see me. And I gave her a day and a time. She went off. And so Olaf sent David to see me. And David came along and we didn't have Angela with him the first time. He just came on his own. David had this thing about him, which he used a lot. He always had it actually, but he had what I call this sort of dying swan thing where you could get your sympathy by making you believe that he was the most suffering and 
maltreated person in the world. Um, he was a great actor. Wasn't very good at actually, good at acting, but he was very good at certain parts of acting. And this was one of them. That interested me a lot because he said, okay, here's somebody who, if he focused that particular capability, he'd get audiences to love him. So why hasn't he yet? Well, it was obvious that he hadn't yet because he'd never actually used that particular skill except to get things he wanted from people who had things he wanted. So if he wanted something from his manager, or early managers, or from his parents, or from his brother Terry, he would, he would persuade them into giving it to him by doing this thing. Mm. And I realized immediately this is what he's doing. He, whether he knows it or not, he's doing it very well. But he's doing it for the wrong purpose. He's doing it to get something that he's already got. He's already going to get my advice. So he doesn't need to persuade me. <laughs> I don't need to be sympathetic to him. I'm already sympathetic to him. David always wanted to make sure that everyone was really on his side. And he was very unhappy with people who weren't on his side, which it's, it's a bad trait, actually, because if you lose sight of the people who supported you, and he did, it leaves you in a bad place because you tend to then lose trust in them and have to pick up some more people to trust. And they may not be any more trustworthy than the people you just dumped. But he never learned that lesson, unfortunately, which is sad. Anyway, he came along and he had this sort of a boy lost attitude. And I said, look, they told me the story of what had happened with Ken Pitt, his version of it. Most importantly, he told me why all his previous efforts had failed. And David always made it somebody else's fault. It was always somebody else's fault, <laughs> never his fault. And again, that's a huge problem because if you don't realize that you're not doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing, you're unlikely to actually make that impression. He needed to, in a sense, wake up. On the other hand, I'd already heard Space Oddity and it always made a big impact on me because the story's not, like I said, some of my early influences were Dylan, mm. who wrote incredibly good story songs. Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, marvelous song, full of images and imagery. David had written songs like that. So what I asked him was, Bring me the records you made for Mercury. He told me he made those. Bring me all your contracts and we'll make an arrangement. We'll see what can be done. Now, once I got his recordings, it was very evident because that, at that point in time, record companies often put the lyrics inside the sleeve, you know, they put it on the inside yes. sleeve. Oh, yes. Or they put them on the back, the back cover of the album. So all David's lyrics were laid out and the lyrics on what was Man, who's, Man of Words, Man of Music, that was Space Oddity. Mm -hmm. There were some very, very interesting songs in there that I've never seen in life day. And the same was, was going to be true. It wasn't true yet. We hadn't made that Man Who Sold the World album yet. But it was obvious that he had a, a real talent for creating these kind of stories in a song.
if he could make that work from a perspective of performing, because I've seen Dylan perform, and Dylan was a natural performer. He had this sort of ability that you can't actually learn to do it. It has to be there. You have to be able to persuade the crowd that they care about you, mm-hmm. that you're meaningful. And it's quite rare to find that sort of natural performer. Most people have to struggle to do that. In a, lot, in a way, that's why you have bands, because bands always need each other to stick together. Whereas the real performer doesn't need anybody to just go on and do the thing that they do. People like Janice, was amazing. His abilities just go on and sing. So that's what David had, but he didn't know how to use it. He didn't know he had it. But he had the songs. And so the songs were already persuaded me that here is somebody, if I could find that inner self, that person that he could be, or some variant of it, that he could actually be very successful, that he could be as successful as Dylan. Ultimately, I don't know whether that really happened, but he certainly, he certainly became as well known as Dylan. And that was the other thing I realized, that he, couldn't, he should stop calling himself David Jones or David this, or, and just have one name, because one name is much easier to handle than two. <laughs> yes. So, you know, becoming Bowie was very important for David. And then becoming Ziggy was very important. And each time he changed identities, whether it was Aladdin Sane or Cracked Actor or Diamond Dogs, he got a new lease of life, if you like. But when you add it all up, it's a nice body of work. Well, it is a nice, it's an amazing body of work. I mean, it's just curious because having sort of, you know, studied or read a lot and been to the exhibition of the V&A, I mean, two people that make Bowie who Bowie is really is yourself and Angie, who don't appear really kind of particularly in the story, do you, of, uh, that gets told in exhibitions. But the two of you together, in, from what I you know, the second time David came to see me, he brought Angela. This is when I got to see all the records and all the contracts. And he and Angela were like two kids out of a, a Dickens story. You know, in, in um, I think it's in Christmas Carol. Right, yes. They, uh, if, you, if you've ever seen the old black and white movie of that. With Alistair Sims. Yeah, exactly, that one. And the Christmas past, I think, points to he's got two children hiding in his robe. Yes. In poverty, you know. He's telling Scrooge about this. And that, or the Bisto kids, remember that? Bisto kids? Yes, Bisto kids, yeah. So that's what they came across as. They came, even though she was in America, they came across as these two lost kids who needed someone to help them and figure stuff out for them. And it was obvious that Angela was devoted to David and would have a huge, that she couldn't move him when he didn't want to be moved. If he, if he was unhappy, sad, fed up, disenchanted, or simply had been let down by somebody or felt he'd been let down, then he would go to bed for the day or he wouldn't get up, he wouldn't go somewhere, he wouldn't do anything. And she couldn't change that, but I could. 
because I could say today with what nobody had said to him before, which is, you don't have to go and do a job that you don't like anymore. And you don't have to go and play in a band you don't like anymore. All you have to do is go away and write songs and I'll take care of all your necessary expenses and I'll get you out of your Mercury contract. Because his biggest mm. problem was Mercury. And because they didn't know any better, they believed me, so off they went. And David then started writing astonishing songs, better than the ones he'd written before. And we got people like Mick Ronson, who was a huge um, creative source for David, to come and arrange those songs and add to those songs and make the songs way better because David would tend to focus more and more on lyrics and less and less on music, whereas Mick was all about getting everything into the proper form, arranging it. On, I think, with Life on Mars, Mick did his first orchestral rendition. So he'd never written an arrangement for an orchestra before, mm. never conducted an orchestra before. And here he was conducting in Trident Studios the full BBC string section <laughs> on the BBC's orchestra. <laughs> and he made a great job of it. Marvelous yeah. And to... so That Sorry. sort of time and devotion was what David really needed. Um, but if you ever sensed that they weren't on his side, which he did eventually with the spiders, then he would just let them go. Yes. Do you, I mean, at the time, was that, because I suppose having done an awful lot of interviews with bands, they normally have a five-year narrative, you know, they get together that 12 months, then, you know, in the 80s, you know, John Peel would play the single, they get the John Peel session, the first album, then possibly the second or third, and then after five years, there's a kind of a critical, crucial moment where things often just explode. And, and during that period with David, I mean, obviously there was the 60s period, and then there was this kind of 70s, and that that there was so much that kind of went in to everything that happened, you know, was happening, you know, because there was the whole world of the Sombrero Club, there was Freddie, Freddie Beretti, there was, you know, you know, characters like Wendy, there was all the bands, there was, you know, Mike Garson coming in, there was kind of a, an album a year being made, world tours. I mean, how did you try to manage that kind of, kind of explosion? Because that's kind of quite, un, you know, that's quite, rare to see something like that happen so far so quickly and having so many characters from people like Mick Rock to you also got the the sound chap didn't you what's his name um Robin oh, Mayhew Robin Mayhew who, who sort of was in a band called the Presidents and he came on tour with the Ziggy Stardust um you know concerts for two years I mean that was a lot to sort of managing and um maintain well, in, in, in amongst all of that, I also um, spent a lot of time working with Stevie Wonder to give him the possibility of getting his freedom from Motown, which didn't mean leaving Motown, it just meant getting control of his own music, recording what he wanted to record, as opposed to what Berry wanted him to record, and owning his own publishing. I don't think he ever got to own his own recordings, but that would have been too much for Barry to give up. 
But ultimately, um, he did get to be Stevie Wonder and not little Stevie Wonder. That yeah. was what he really wanted. So that took up quite a lot of time in that year, which was sort of 70. He came to see me originally in 70 or 70, yeah, 1970. And then by, by first part of 71, because I think his birthday was in May, it was already clear that Motown would not let him go, but would make a better and new deal with him. And so I got a chap called Vigoda, who was a lawyer, to do that. And, and Stevie became Stevie Wonder. It wasn't Stevie Wonder before that. Yes. In David's case, I spent a lot of time with a lot of bands and a lot of acts, like Humble Pie, for example, Pink Floyd, who, what I knew that most people didn't realize was that if you could actually create a properly rehearsed band, and this essentially is what really gave David the acceleration that he needed. The idea that you could actually rehearse an act that was completely choreographed, no different than a ballet, an opera, a play. Um, I'd spent a long time from my early years going to operas and plays and watching them and understanding how they were put together. And that's something David had never done. Although he'd had these occasional theatrical flings with Lindsay, that wasn't real theater. That wasn't theater that you had to be on point, on time, on dialogue, on cue, every single night, sometimes three shows a day, and never fluff your lines and never fail to get audience on your side or mm. against you as a character you're playing. David had never had that sort of discipline before. And Angela didn't have the ability to provide it. Angela knew how to make lavish costumes, not herself, but to put them together for Margaret. She knew how to dress things up, how to encourage David to dress up. And she loved having that sort of constant party going on. But what she didn't have any idea how to do was how to make David rehearse, rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And the band had been a band, Nick and the Spiders, and I mean the Rats, and they were all the Rats in half. Yes. They'd also never really spent time rehearsing what they were doing. They simply went and played and got paid, or not as the case may be and got another gig and went to another gig. What bands always did, and if they were lucky and they had a hit and they got famous, they carried on doing it. But there was no discipline. There was no absolute thing that said, this is what you have to do. There was no connection between the sound folk and the guy on stage. There was no cue sheet telling people on the sound deck when to turn this instrument up and that instrument down. There was no lighting cues for lights to be engaged at certain points in the performance and not at other points. 
nobody made a list until I came along of what was required for an act to perform at a venue, how high the stage, how high the drum riser, how deep the stage, what sort of lights, what sort of backlights, what sort of stage lights. We used to take our own stage lights to Perry's early concerts because most of the places we were playing didn't have a proper lighting rig. Mm. Later on, it became normal to have lighting rigs, but in those days, you didn't put your own lights and your own sound, otherwise you have a lousy show. Yes. So that was the key to the speed at which David got famous. The other key was that he made these two astonishing albums, which were Hungry Dory and Ziggy, and he had two existing astonishing albums that could be released. So before Hunky Dory and Ziggy, David's Mercury albums had completely failed to do anything at all. They, they didn't have any hits on them. They didn't have singles. Singles they had were failures. And the albums poorly sold. Because I'd recovered them and not given them to RCA, but rather licensed them to RCA, now, all of a sudden, David had four albums out in one year, which no other artist ever did. Even the Beatles never managed to get out four albums in a year. See what I mean? So the impetus of the album, for most people, those were brand new albums. Yes. Not about them, but they were good albums. They had good songs on Bits of a Circle, All the Madman, great songs. In addition, you had this whole group of people who were now Ziggy fans and wanted to be Ziggy and look like Ziggy. And so they were an enormous influence. And once you have that and you can manage it, you can get them to come to concerts. We started out doing concerts after, I think it was 19, January of 1972, we did our first Ziggy concert which was really our first full Bowie concert. So remember, I, I met David in 1970, but I didn't put him back on stage until 1972. Yes. That two years was all work on his part and my part. Get him out of his contracts, get new contracts, get a better band, get a better producer, get better arrangements, make better songs, and yes. organize lighting and sound in a way that they would coordinate. And then, and this is where Alice was very helpful, make sure the band became not just a band, not just another blue jeans and long hair, bunch of musicians, but rather became a costumed group of possible aliens from outer space which at first the band were very opposed to the idea of actually wearing costumes and going on stage and having a star and, you know, all of that. Yes. But when they started getting enormous amounts of applause and certainly in mixed case, lots of attention from girls, it was like, okay, <laughs> let me have a different costume for tonight. <laughs> There's a dramatic change from a bunch of guys from Hull who suddenly realize that they can actually go up and prance about. Now, unfortunately, that idea became so rabid in England, but that by the time we got around to Slade and you know, every, other, every other person was wearing you know, stack-heeled boots and 
looking like Alice Cooper, then it was all over. But yes, David was past that. Then. But the, the well, the interesting thing is that David sort of was able, seemed able to change his character or change certainly the style and the album, which I suppose at the time seems quite brave, you know, kind of killing Ziggy, and then he did Aladdin Sane. Whereas when someone like Mark Boland was still going years and years later, he was still trying to be Mark Boland from 72, whereas David had obviously made that change, even though there were some kind of painful relationships with members of the, the Spiders and things like that. But he did, he did have quite a character for being able to drop people as well as move on. Did you, did you sort of and see that as well in those early honeymoon days? Yeah, like I said before, it was obvious David would immediately abandon anybody who wasn't in his perception on his side or just wasn't useful to him anymore. He did it with all his early bands. Remember, before I met David, he'd been trying since he was 15. And here he is, he's, I think he's 20, 20 23 or 24 and I met him, something like that. So he spent already 10 years and failed with seven different metal companies to <laughs> make a dent. <laughs> so most people would say, why would you spend time and money on this guy? He's obviously a failure. Yeah. I didn't see David as a failed songwriter. I saw him as a failed performer who wrote marvelous songs. The difference was, you know, it's a bit like having a playwright who thinks he's a director or thinks he's an actor but can't act. Mm. But maybe his plays are really good. Maybe you should stick to writing plays and let other people do the directing and the acting. Yes. In David's case, when he was obviously, and he was only exhausted from Ziggy because it was a success, the problem was we started out, like I said, in Owsbury in 1972 a little club called Friars, which has since become very famous, but was largely unknown then. Three reasons why we went to Alsby. First of all, he had a fan club in Alsby. It's the only one he had in England at the time. So, so at least he, we never knew there were some people who'd come and see it. Second of all, it was quite a popular venue for um, foreign acts that came over and for acts starting out. And it was close to London. You didn't have to drive 200 miles to get to it. Mm. So these were the reasons for doing it. We knew David would have a decent reception there. And we also knew that we could work with the people who ran the club. Um, and they had manageable, I mean, you know, workable sound and lights. We bring in our own sound anyway, but we have our own lights. So it was a good place to begin. Now, fortunately, the, the crowd that first night were not huge, it wasn't like a complete sellout, but they were substantial, and they were enthusiastic, and they were totally unprepared for what was coming, they had no idea what they were going to see, and when they did see it, they were very enthusiastic about it. They, were, yeah. they didn't, didn't say horrible. They were very keen, they thought it was marvellous stuff. They were completely overcome to begin with, but then they got into the spirit of the thing, like, okay. Now, unfortunately, the next few gigs we did, I think probably the next, maybe the next six or eight gigs we did, were not nearly as successful as Owlsbury. Some of them were so poorly attended that we had to bring 
our own people, and when I say our own people, I mean we bought Robin's girlfriend and uh, Kisa Gerber's wife and uh, just anyone who we knew who would come as long as we got them to the venue and you know, yes. made sure they could get back. Um, and they, and you know, my girlfriends, um, um, Angela and any friends she could find, would come and would start dancing when David was singing a song that was danceable. And so we could encourage whatever fans were there to think that there was a real audience. And David, of course, was fully aware of this and was very unhappy about the fact that he didn't have all these people shouting and screaming. Yes, well, I, I think on that tour, you, you, when you played Norwich, you did two shows on the same evening, which was probably quite exhausting for the band. But then you didn't have a support act, did you either? So, Well, this were two, there were two things there. First of all, I always wanted David to headline because support acts were, it's not that I opposed to them, but the, the standard process in the music industry was to have multiple bands on the bill in any venue the primary reason being because they would get enough support from multiple record companies if they had multiple bands to pay for the show, even if there wasn't a paying audience. If there was a paying audience, it was a bonus. And if you had enough bands, you were more likely to get a big audience. That's the upside. Yeah. That's all about the gig. That's about the venue for the performer, for the artist, and for the management, it's a very different story because what it does for the performers, it says, okay, you're going to have a slot. Because your, your slot may be <clears throat> like the Rolling Stones used to go to America and be at, at the bottom of the Icantina Turner Review, which there were six bands on before them. And the only plus in that was um, Mick Jagger, who couldn't dance for anything before managed to learn a bit of dancing from Tina Turner by watching in the wings. But I mean, yeah. you know, but the bonus for being a headliner was you get to control the sound check, you get to control the lights, you get to control the staging, and you get to make the audience more audience rather than an audience that came to see a whole bunch of other people. And if you're not a very, very strong standout act, being in that sixth spot is basically a disaster. If you were Iggy, you could be at the very bottom of the bill and still get the crowd on your side just by being Iggy. Yes. But David wasn't. David took Iggy as an inspiration. But he never got to be the performer that Iggy was. It's a difference. Iggy was, again, a natural performer who could do astonishing stuff and did. David was trying to be that person and only could get there in character. And even then it was difficult. Yes. So today with the next round of gigs on that first leg of that tour were very, very disappointing. And then we started doing some venues like Imperial College, where people were very keen to see them. They were very enthusiastic. It was full. He actually tried walking on the audience, and that didn't work out very well. And they weren't prepared for it. <laughs> that was trying to copy Iggy's stunt, but Iggy's stunt was done in a very large stadium with an enormous audience at a big festival. 
it's a whole different, and he prepared with baby oil and peanut butter, he prepared to stage dive. Nobody called it stage diving then, but he invented stage diving, really. Um, and, and he was much more risk friendly. Dave was very risk averse always. So, hold on. Hold on a minute. That's all right. Bring our doorbell. It's oh, yes. very loud. Was it? It could be Amazon. <laughs> so David got to the point um, where he, he was looking for more audience support. And yeah. because we were playing venues that we knew had some level of, of fan base, he eventually started to get that support. And the word of mouth and the amount of play that he was getting grew. And we did a lot of dates on that particular tour. And by the end of it, we had to go back to places we played and play them again, because when they were largely empty get first go round, the promoters were now saying, look, we've got a huge demand. So can you come back? And then we did go to the point where David was doing two shows a day, two shows a night. And he got very exhausted from that. Yes. So that was... Yeah, but he was getting... At this point, he was getting to be that person. Now, this all happens in the space of a year. Remember, by a few months after that first January Ellsbury, we do the Ellsbury that has all the American press flown over for the event. It's only, that's, I think it's June or July. It's only four or five months after we've done this first Asbury concert. And the second Asbury concert is a huge success because now the audience are very there, they're enthusiastic, and everyone goes back to America and writes about what a big star David is in the UK, which was the object of the exercise because you can't go and headline America if nobody's going to show up. No. And I had this idea. It was a crazy idea for the time, but I had the idea that if David couldn't go to America's headline, he shouldn't go at all. Now, I was right about that, although it took a while for people to admit. <laughs> because as a headliner, David could go and play Carnegie Hall. And he did have a support act, but he wasn't the support act. And that was massively important. And by the same token, we could go and play a 3,000 seat facility in Cleveland. And it was full because he had a big following in Cleveland. And there was such demand that we could come back six months later and play the 10,000, that was a facility that had a 3,000 seat music hall on one side and a 10,000 seat arena on the other side. We'd come back and play the 10,000 seats of two nights in a row by our second time around. So David did get a very quick, it looks like a launch, mm. a quick launch. But the work that went into getting to that launch is like any launch, a lot of, a lot of work. Yes, there. and a certain, a certain amount to gamble. And, but then by the, the kind of, and, and this whole story about the Sombrero Club and that scene as well, which were hugely important. But then, but then by the mid 70s, you know, the, the kind of honeymoon period was was kind of waning at that stage. And obviously, because Lawrence had already left, 
had you paid Lawrence as well out of the the Connor contract? So, so what happened was Lawrence and I were pretty much on the same page as far as Jim was concerned for the first couple of years, I think 1970, 71, 72. The problem was I had this uh, idea that we could make David a star, or I could make him a star. I'm managing the way he performed in America. And to do that, I needed an American office. I need an American staff. I need an American operation. Lawrence had become a fairly important figure, or Jem had become a fairly important player, let's say, in the industry in the UK. The UK is a small pond. It's always been a small pond, but in those days, the music industry was still quite small. I mean, I knew almost everybody in the industry, and I knew the heads of all the major record companies in the US as well, personally. And you can't really do that today. It's changed. But in those days, it was possible to go and have a meeting with Clive because, let's say, you wanted to talk about whether or not you should make Mickey's latest record for whichever artist was on CBS shorter. Mm. Mickey didn't want to a record Mickey wanted it to be the length he recorded and Clive was being told by his folk if it's over three minutes long nobody will play it and then, you know you've got that sort of issue and the only way to resolve those issues in those days was to get in a plane and go talk that's <laughs> <laughs> crazy today but that's the way it was and in that case you have a situation where Lawrence has got to this very comfortable position and he's taken a number of financial risks to get there because you would get advances for records, you would get advances for songwriters, but you had to earn back the advance before you could get the next round. Meanwhile, I've persuaded Mercury to give me back the two Bowie albums, and I've persuaded RCA to pay me to get them back so I can buy them back and license them on. And all this is making Lawrence very nervous because he's now in territory where he has to take a financial risk. And he's an accountant. Accountants hate financial risk. Yes. <laughs> Whereas what he sees me as is somebody who is, on the face of it, I think Lawrence saw me as impulsive. He's older, he's married, he's got children. Is settled. I'm, you know, fairly wild character in those days. I've got Tom Jones hair, and people actually mistake me for Tom Jones a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, um, I've got, I've got um, this idea that I'm going to start a U.S. record label with no real talent except possibly Iggy. Um, and David, maybe Motley Hoople. Um, and Lawrence is thinking, this is going to be a very expensive undertaking, and how are we going to pay for it? Whereas I'm thinking, this is going to be a relatively 
small undertaking to begin with, and the RCA will pay for it. And the main point is, it's not a question of, of how, but rather a question of if I don't go to America and actually make it happen, then David's not going to be a star in America. If he's not a star in America, he might just as well be Mark Boland because Mark's failure was he failed to ever get a handle on America. And sad, sadly, because I knew Mark and I liked him, but sadly that meant his career failed. Yes. Very few of acts made it in America. If you don't make it in America, your mother, your mother's superstar. Yes. And the acts didn't make it in America. It's well, a big between. Yeah, no, there's there's hardly anybody actually. It's kind of a famous document, uh, famous narrative. So, what what was your memories? So, of so Lawrence, yes, so Lawrence, Lawrence and I decided that I would start another entity, which was Main Man, and he would keep Gem, and we'd separate the various writers, producers, artists, according to um, who I was primarily engaged with and who he was primarily engaged with. And that meant that I took Danny Gillespie and I took Iggy and I took Mott um, and Lou Reed and David, and maybe a few other people. Okay. Oh, of course, Mick, Mick Ronson as well. Yeah. Um, off to Mayman. And then we went and had this marvellous adventure. A marvellous adventure. <laughs> but then... What's your memories of the famous meeting? I don't know if it's famous, but the one in LA where Lawrence is in one room, David's team is on another, and, and you're in another team, and having to deal with the kind of the murky, the, the kind of the murky kind of 1975 moment where it's sort of things aren't going so well. Can you, you know, because Lawrence has kind of mentioned this in his book, hasn't he? Yeah, I don't. I don't recollect that Lawrence was involved in the settlement negotiations, although he might have been, because the basis of my, my arrangement when I left Lawrence was that he would continue to have an interest in David up to the earning of, so he'd have a royalty interest in the recordings for a period of X, or until he earned um, half a million dollars. And Lawrence didn't think that David would ever make half a million dollars of, on that royalty of his. And so he was quite happy to sign off on that. Turned out that David did make half a million dollars and Lawrence was not very happy about that. Although he didn't expect to get the half a million Once he got it, it was like, well, now I've, now I've actually cut myself out of what might have been a million dollars. But that's always the problem when people realise that they acted too soon, yes. maybe too hastily. Um, when David and I fell out, was more about because ultimately David failed to deal with the pressure of fame, because really what happened was when Ziggy was overwhelming David, that was part of the problem, Ziggy overwhelmed David. Ziggy was someone who sort of became him, and he didn't want to be Ziggy all the time, but he was becoming Ziggy all the time. And it was making him very successful. Being Ziggy all the time was a good thing to do. Um, I once said to David, if you want to be a star, you have to act like a star. 
So don't leave home as Bowie or David Bowie or David Jones. Mm. Don't leave home without that persona that you're a star. And he took the advice and it worked very well. But then, then he felt that the sticky person was eating him up and he wanted to quit. And what I said to him was, if you do it properly, you can actually make it work because Sinatra had quit quite a few times in his career. He retired at least twice. And it never actually hurt him. He always came back stronger than before. So I said to David, if you do it in the style of a Sinatra, and you just announce it ideally at a concert. So we planned this announcement and we told Nick. We didn't tell anybody else. I think Angela knew. Um, so everyone was very surprised when David retired Ziggy and Hammersmith. He was very relieved because it meant he could invent a new character and do a whole other thing. And everyone wrote about it, which was marvelous because we got lots of publicity and it made him more famous than Yes. Which is quite quite an extraordinary. Yeah, well, it's one of the great moments of kind of rock history, isn't it? That famous speech. But I just wondered what you were feeling moving on after, you know, working with David, but you you still obviously had your connections, but obviously things had sort of moved on from your kind of involvement with him. Did it feel quite strange suddenly not having David kind of to manage anymore? Uh, well, the breakup didn't quite work like that. First of all, it took quite a long time. The, the, the reasons for the breakup were primarily because David had got involved in using narcotics. He and I had agreed at the beginning that one of the things that he would not do was use narcotics or any other substances. That was part of our understanding and he wasn't able to maintain that. And first of all, he tried hiding it and then when he couldn't hide it, then he decided that it was my fault that he was taking drugs when in fact it was nothing to do with me. It was all mm. his choice. But at the same time, my staff in America were under enormous problem because, especially then, it's probably still true today, but then if you had security people and you had bouncers and you had all kinds of people involved in trying to keep David from the public, all that had to happen was that would show up and he'd give a couple of bags of cocaine to the appropriate uh, guards or security folk and he'd get led in and then he'd hand over to David the drugs that David needed. And very, very difficult to stop that from happening. The result was that David was sliding down the slippery slope with more cocaine, more addiction and ultimately would probably lead to heroin. And I'd already dealt with Marianne, who had issues in that space. I've dealt with Iggy, who had issues in that space, with Lou, who had issues more with alcohol and, and drugs, actually. Mm. That's where main man comes from. That's where waiting for the man comes from. They're all about drugs. It was Iggy who famously, who famously 
said to Clive Davis, ask Tony, he's my main man. That's how I got the name, actually, from that particular conversation. It's obviously from Waiting for the Man. Yes. Now, there is the problem. How do you persuade an addict to quit? You can't. And you could send them to rehab, and I could have persuaded David to go to rehab. It would have come out. It would have been a item. I didn't want that either. It would not have been good for his long-term career. And we didn't break up in that way. What happened was we split the catalogue so that he would have control with me over everything we'd done to date, what we called the old masters. And the new recordings, he'd be able to control, provided I had a 16 or 18% stake, but he wouldn't be able to make arrangements to deal with those recordings without me. So effectively, I got to carry on managing the catalogue, both the recordings and the publishing, whether he liked it or not, in his best interests, for the next forever. Eventually, I got tired of doing it, so I sold him back the rights. But by that time, he was clean, and he had more competent management, and so it was okay. Yes. And, so does that mean that the work that he did from 75 through the 80s right up to Black Star, that you were still slightly connected with those releases on that percentage? Up until 1997. The end of 97 is when we agreed that um, I would let go of my interest in exchange for payment. So after 97, he had theoretically complete control, subject to whoever else he'd appointed. Yes. But yes, from, from uh, effectively from 1970 to 1997, I was having my partners in handling his... Business. Business, his affairs. Yes. What was the last, what was the, um, I think, I think she's... What, what was, I mean, just briefly, I mean, when, when, he, when you heard that he had passed away, what, what was your sort of emotional feeling on that? Because obviously you hadn't probably spoke to him on much of a friendship basis, but you've got such a history. I just wondered what your initial response was. Well, remembering that I'd been involved with all the recordings he made right up until that time, one way or another, that and that we were friends. David and I were very close when we were very close. Um, I never stopped thinking of him as a friend. I never thought of him as an enemy. I thought of him as somebody who would make mistakes unless he was well advised and was not always open to good advice because he chose people based on his affinity for them rather than whether or not they're competent. Um, but he and I were very, very close. So yes, I was massively um, disappointed when he died, but it was also expected because he had done himself a great deal of harm over yes. the many years I knew him. He had done himself a lot of harm. 
Yes. But yeah, it was quite and I, I do, and I was surprised, honestly, even though I knew how successful it was, I was still surprised at the amount of grief and sorrow that was demonstrated by the people at large. I mean, so many people came out who didn't really know Dave, his later audience, young people from his era, who missed him, who were engaged by his songs and music. So there was a very big feeling of grief when he died, which meant that he was even more successful than we intended. <laughs> well, he has become, you know, like I know you have the Beatles, you have the Stones, and then you have David, you know, but he's the one person, isn't he? You're never going to look at the solo work of any of those members, but David's work is something quite special. And you've, you know, you've been part of that narrative, which is extraordinary. You know, if it wasn't for your moment in the, the 70s, you know, he would have been probably doing some dreadful mime act with an acoustic guitar. Yeah, you know, it's fair to say that without me, David would not have become buried. Wasn't on the cards him as well. No. Anyway, look, well, thank you ever so much. I'll, I'll let you go because I, I mean, if you could have just whispered, okay, just one kind of word to your 16 year old self, not word, but you know, one little kind of bullet point to your 16 year old self, is there anything particular you would have just whispered to them? Anything particular that I would want? Well, just word of advice or word of wisdom from yourself to your younger self when you were 16. <sighs> to my younger self, I would have said, never become a landlord. Because when I was young, my brother and I bought and sold and rented property. And the one thing I really, really didn't like was being a landlord. So I would have said, don't do that. Don't do that business. <laughs> but everything else, you've been amazingly successful. Yeah, relatively. I've been, yeah, I've been comfortable, successful. I'm working on, right now, a process that's designed to help, we hope, save world. It's a method of separating molecules like CO2 and CH4 and other dangerous materials into safer materials like carbon and oxygen or carbon and hydrogen. And if it's successful, it might help us to overcome the current crisis. So we'll see. Well, see, well, look, this is always great. Well, thank you ever so much for this. It's been amazing. And um, yeah, really amazing. Thank you. Um, I can't say that enough times without you be, okay. becoming in, You're irritated. Welcome. irritated. But anyway, look, have a lovely day. And thanks again to your wife for helping to set that up. Yeah. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. thanks. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation or not. Anyway, Eden I love leaving those little bits in, but a massive thank you to Tony, Tony DeFreyas for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, 
You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived. There's lots of David Bowie-related interviews that uh, you can find there, so you can check those out. Uh, Just do C86 Show, and um, I probably just said it, but Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, they're the places. So have a great week. Stay safe.